Welcome back to another episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. Today, we're sitting down with my good friend, Ishwar Anandapad Manabhan. He's a grad student at MIT. He's an expert in augmented reality, virtual reality, hackathons, and all things design and innovation in the digital age. Ishwar, I'm so happy to have you. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'd like to start by asking you, when you think of who is Ishwar in 2020, how do you think about yourself? How do you describe yourself to other people? Could you do a little bit of a self-introduction? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I think uh, one of the things that I've been uh, recently referring to is, uh, it, it's a term from the, the film industry called auteur. Um, and it, it sort of uh, defines somebody who does sort of production directing, acting, screenwriting, um, knows a little bit of everything. It doesn't really have an expertise in any one of them, but is able to kind of pick up any hat and wear it. Um, and I feel like that's something that I've had to develop over the past couple of years is really just pick up um, any tool that I can have in my tool chest, um, both, you know, on the, on the technical and design side, but also just, uh, you know, as, as a human, I've, I've just tried to, to do that. And I continue to try to learn new things that I can add to my, my, my little toolbox. Um, that's probably the one word I would use to say what my mindset is like and um, how I how I feel um, in 2020, juggling different hats. Your most recent project is this augmented reality and virtual reality hackathon on MIT's campus. So could you just start out by telling us a little bit about that? And then I want to loop back around to what your background is, what you studied for undergrad, what you're studying now. I think painting the picture of this hackathon will give people a really good framework for who you are and, and the incredible things you're doing in the world. Sure. Yeah. Um, the hackathon is a great thing. I, I love talking about it. So it, um, you know, it started four years ago, really, um, as, uh, what we call reality virtually on campus. It was a small idea. Um, I was, uh, tangentially involved not at the core of it, but, um, to start a hackathon, um, to bring together a bunch of people who are interested in augmented virtual reality and, and build and learn from, from, um, from that experience. So that's where it really started. And it kind of took off. Uh, it became a community builder of its own and uh, became one of the core events in the XR uh, world. Um, so this year, we decided to reinvent it. Um, we had some shuffling and things going on. And we, uh, we, we, we sort of rethought what it meant to have this hackathon. Um, so we founded, uh, we found an organization to run it and to expand um, this inter- initiative and energy um, across the year and across other times. So at the core of it, it's a five-day event. Um, this year, uh, our new brand and new name is Reality Hack. So we launched Reality Hack. It's every year in January um, when it's blizzarding and cold up in up in Boston, but uh, that, that makes, you know, makes it more fun. Um, so it's five days. We had, I believe, uh, 350 people this year uh, who are participating. They come from around the world. So we had 36 countries in one room um, represented. We bring every company from the XR industry. I mean, all these companies are new and early. Everyone's experimenting. So they all want to get their tech in the hands of developers and designers who are going to see what's possible with it. Um, So we bring every company um, into the room. Um, And it's awesome because some of these companies haven't even launched their products yet. So they're they're coming here. Um, People people love them. People have a lot of hype about them. But they're they're, they're just there to see what they can learn from developers just as much as developers want to learn from from the tech that these companies are bringing. Um, So it starts with workshops. Um, people come in as total strangers. They go through workshops, 25 workshops. 
they get to form teams. So they form uh, 300 strangers, turn to 85 teams over about an hour and a half, which is a whole process of its own. Um, and then they spend three days hacking. So they get three full days. Um, we don't go overnight. Um, we, we keep it to, uh, we, we try to let people sleep. But uh, three days of hacking follows up with judging of all the projects, uh, a, a fun party. And then we go into our final um, sort of uh, award ceremony and expo to the public. So it's sort of a celebration from beginning to end of the education, the, uh, the uh, conceptual hacking, and then showcasing the tech and the possibilities of this future to the public. Um, and what comes out of it is these people are just continuing the conversation. Some of the teams are going on to launch companies. Some of them are presenting at film festivals. So it's this catapult for a lot of people who are new to the industry and people who are already in the industry uh, to continue, continue uh, building on it. Um, and then we're looking forward to 2021 already and events uh, in the future to see how we can continue building on this energy and, and keep growing the industry. Cool. So rapid fire questions about the hackathon. What is yeah. the size of the hackathon? How many people, how much, how much money goes into this? How many companies come into it? Yeah, so we have about, uh, I'd say 500-ish people who, who are part of it in total, about 350 hackers. Um, but we have a huge mentor support network, about 80 plus mentors. We've got, you know, lots of other folks who help it as well. And, um, about, uh, you know, it's, it's a big operation. So we, you know, five days food, all these, all the things add up. So we run, uh, you know, a pretty large operation to keep this going. Um, and, comp- and, you know, about 10 to 12 different companies that came to support it. So you're 23, correct? Yep. So you're 23 and you're running a 500 person event at the bleeding edge of one of the most bleeding edge industries that exists right now. It's freaking incredible. Yeah, I mean, the, w- the way I think about it is I could spend my time hacking on a project or I can en- enable 85 projects to come out of a weekend, you know? And the, and, the, and the power of doing that is so much greater than me spending a weekend on something. Um, and just the energy and bringing all these people together, it's, it's just magical. I mean, that's the only way I could describe it. And what were some of the most impactful projects that came out of this, that came out of this hackathon, either this year uh, or in past years? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's definitely a couple. So the one that uh, I like to highlight a lot is um, a team that won first place in 2017. Um, and they decided to continue their project because of that. And they said, hey, maybe we have something cool here. Um, they applied to a couple of accelerators and decided to launch a company out of it. Um, what they built was a tool f- to improve uh, industrial training um, for, for, for workers and, and expert capture and things like that. Um, they ended up building a company and started getting a lot of traction and started actually getting revenue pretty early on. Um, and PTC, who is uh, was a local company and a pretty large uh, company, they invented CAD. Uh, that's their the name to fame. Um, Just CAD, they, CAD for everyone's information, computer-aided design. Yep. That's, you know, CAD has been around for a little bit, but it's it's transformative. And that's, uh, you know, their name to fame. But they're big in AR and VR in industrial automation today. They acquired uh, PT, uh, Waypoint Labs, actually. Um, and today, you know, three of the founders who are all, who all started their journey at the hackathon, their company got acquired and they're all VPs of, you know, heads of their departments at PTC. So that's, you know, one of the biggest success stories we have. Wow. That's incredible. PTC is an incredible company and they're making really cool tech. I mean, it's just yeah. it's testament again to the thesis that you're really working on the bleeding edge of a bleeding edge industry. Um, okay, cool. So now a little more insight into the hackathon and, and what you're actually doing, and then we'll dive into, okay, how did you actually get here to being this amazing 23-year-old running a 500-person event at the bleeding edge of an industry? Um, when it comes to this hackathon, what does it take to put on an event like this? How many staff members are involved? How much money do you need to raise to put this event on? What, how many hours go into coordinating something like this? 
Yeah. Um, it's, it's a lot. So we spent about eight months planning this thing. It, it's a year round, um, sort of venture effect, effectively. Um, and it's, it starts with a couple of things. Um, so this year was unique for us cause we rebuilt the whole thing. So we started with a brand new brand. We came up with a brand new name. Um, we had a brand new design. So all of that, uh, are challenges because they're not familiar to people. Um, but the, the core like brand of this is the MIT XR hackathon was still there. People recognized it. So the first thing we did was, was uh, we made it a plan for what's our timeline for launching this thing publicly, uh, because it's twofold. One fold is we've got to get all these bleeding edge companies in the room, which is going to attract our participants. The second fold is we need the participants to bring the companies in. And we've got to do both of these in parallel. So there's a, a little bit of an interesting thing there where we uh, you know, built a social media campaign, launched this event, um, and we had a lot of organic chatter about from past participants talking about how amazing their experiences were. And that's something that you can't, you can't put it, you know, you can spend as much you want on Facebook ads, but you just can't get yeah. something like that to happen. So we had dozens and dozens of people sharing about, wow, this thing is back. Um, I'm going to, I so want to go to it. Um, and that just grew an organic following for us um, extremely quickly. Within a month, we were pretty much at, at where, we, where we needed to be to open applications and have a good following. And once that's happening, at the same time, all of our companies are looking at this. You know, this is, a, this is a small industry. It's not massive. You know, the XR world isn't massive. Everybody sees it. And they're all getting excited about it, about, wow, there's this really cool event happening. We have to get into it. So building that FOMO for both participants and companies was step one for us. Because once you've got the money, once you've got the tech, and once you've got the participants, now you just have to run a really good event. Um, and and, and that's, that's not easy either. I mean, I say that, but that's not easy. Um, because there's a lot of design that goes into it. Because when we're talking about a five-day event, that's about 12, you know, 14 hours a day. It's about 80 hours or, or so of, of, of work. And, um, you know, we have to think about each step of the way and what's going to happen with everybody. So we have a team of about 30, 35 people um, all over the country. Actually, we're entirely remote, which is also something unique. So we actually met, the entire team met for the first time two days before the event. Um, oh, wow. That's So even, even at MIT, I would have assumed that this was just all MIT students. No, so, that, so that's one of the unique things. So we've got, uh, so we have a 501c3 to run this event. Um, it's a partnership between a student club, the Media Lab, the MIT Media Lab, and this 501c3 that we run because we have people, you know, past participants, alumni, tons of people who come in and say, I want to I contribute to this thing because it's awesome. And um, we, we bring them in. So it's not just students. Um, that's, that's definitely a core thing that, 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 that's uh, important to us. And you were managing this entire De- decentralized autonomous organization, correct? Yeah, yeah. So I was one of three of us, uh, sort of execs, uh, as I say. But I was the, you know, the feet on the ground, really, um, since I was local to Boston. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, this is a team that's extremely, extremely competent and, and high functioning. So really, just some good management, and and the team kind of really does does things by themselves. Okay, we're definitely going to come back to that one. Um, First, the first though, I want to just take a step back and I want to learn a little bit more about your background and how you actually got to this point where you are managing this organization. So maybe walk mm-hmm. us through where are you from originally? Uh, yeah. What did you study at MIT? What did you study in your master's degree? And what are your personal interests outside of your, your degree? Yeah. So um, I, I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, which is uh, right across the river from New York. Went to a small public high school, um, knew I wanted to do engineering. I loved, I loved building stuff from an early age, so I knew I wanted to, uh, you know, continue the, the building. Um, so I came to MIT, uh, pretty much a, a wide-eyed freshman, not knowing what I was going to do besides 
the fact that I was going to do electrical engineering and computer science, um, which is what I ended up majoring in. Um, and at my time at MIT, I, I just explored a ton of stuff. Um, I just tried uh, just a lot of different things. I took uh, architecture classes. I took mechanical engineering classes, business classes, um, lots of just weird things. I took toy product design, um, just a lot of you know, random, weird, fun classes, but each one was just a unique learning experience. Uh, you know, back to the toolbox metaphor, just adding another experience into the toolbox. Um, and I, I founded this group VR AR MIT because around 2015, right when VR was kicking off, I just got extremely excited by the potential of it um, and ended up just focusing on that for the, for the next four years. And until today, um, you know, VR and AR has been part of my hypothesis for what I want to work on for the next uh, next decade, really. Uh, so launched a group on campus that did a lot of stuff with that. Um, also got very involved with the entrepreneurship scene here because uh, pretty early on at MIT, I also kind of knew that uh, to make the most impact I wanted to make and to really enjoy the process of whatever I was going to work on post post university, um, I wanted to found something on my own. Um, so that was the other lens I had was VR and AR is, is really the industry I love. But what what do I want to do from 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 a life perspective? Is I want to found things and, and launch. And, you know, launch, uh, launch products and launch companies of my own. Um, so did that, did a bunch of stuff in undergrad um, and decided to do a master's this past year at the intersection of AR, VR and um, space operations uh, for Aero Astro. Um, and now, you know, finished up my master's. I'm looking forward to, to actually going ahead and starting something, which is something I've been thinking about for a while now, but it's finally time to go ahead and do that. Boston's also a really incredible city. And I think that's something yeah. that's really interesting that people underappreciate is where you spend your time as as a as this unique resource like yeah. Boston I whenever I'm there I just have I'm, I just feel a lot more brilliant than when I'm not in Boston <laughs> just by the people that I'm surrounding myself with because you have these these three or four really incredible research institutions all in yeah. one place could you talk a little bit about that from your perspective of being a student at MIT in Boston yeah yeah so I think the first thing uh, I'd mention is that um Boston or Massachusetts was the like sort of the first startup in this country. Um, they, you know, the 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 pilgrims and the, the colonists came over and they founded this thing here, right? And I think that history is in Boston. Everywhere you walk, it's just such an old city, and you feel the history um, and and really feel that you're at the center of it. And then you add on this this fact that there's dozens of universities and institutions. There's I think a quarter of a million university students um, in Boston which is a crazy number. I mean, that's so massive that you're surrounded by people with so many interests and um, a lot of energy. Um, you've got a lot of energy going on, uh, just events going on, and just a lot of people you can bump into. And, um, you know, just having a lot more people uh, allows for a lot more interactions. And I think that that plays a huge part into it. You know, you can hop over to Harvard, you can go to Tufts, you can go to um, BU. And each of these universities has their own expertise and specialty, right? So, so you've got this hub of innovation from... Uh, innovation and energy uh, that I think is is what you're what you're referring to there. It's really really incredible. Um, and then there's MIT as its as as its own entity. How so? I've always been enamored by MIT as viewing it just the resources that that they have access to. Maybe it's because they have so much money. Maybe it's because there's so much legacy technology that's come out of MIT. But whenever I'm at MIT, it is, feels like it's just another class of university. It doesn't feel like just another university. Um, what do you think it is that really sets MIT apart from the rest of the universities? And, and I would say 
let's parse out the institution of MIT from the institution of other universities. It's just, I feel like it's yeah. a different type of institution than just a university. I think there's two factors. Uh, one factor is that MIT as an institution thinks a lot about innovation. And I don't just mean what are the cutting edge research projects we're going to do, but how do we keep reinventing ourselves? So, I mean, in the late 90s, early 2000s, they launched OCW to put out all of the you know, MIT curriculum and lectures publicly online way before MOOCs were a concept, way before you know, even accessing video content on the internet was a familiar concept. Um, let, me, let me jump in that, right there. I've taken so many classes from MIT online. Exactly. I mean, they took all of this amazing content and just made it free for all. And that was so ahead of its time. Um, you know, that was a decade ahead of its time, really. And But that's just a, a example of how they've continued to reinvent themselves. And that's across the board. Every professor, every uh, staff employee, everybody's thinking about how do we push ourselves further. Um, and that sort of culture, I think, is really important. The second piece, I would say, is the culture of, that students have. Um, academics aren't the, be, uh, the, the end of everything. You know, I think that's a culture that we've all had. Um, and everybody just accepts that it's, um, uh, that there are more important things. Everybody's got their thing outside of class that they're so passionate about that they're going to drop an exam for possibly if they need to, they're going to, you know, put everything on hold for one and two camaraderie. Uh, some people have this misconception that MIT is probably super competitive. That's can't be further from the truth. Uh, because people really don't care about grades. Also, we're not graded on a curve. You know, classes aren't on on curves, so you don't need to compete with people. And um, it's quite the opposite. People are you know staying up till three a.m. helping underclassmen and, and and doing all of that, which is you know you, you see that in other places as well. But it's not competitive for sure. Um, and that culture of students building things, breaking things, um, and caring more than just classes, I think, is a, the other factor. And so, as you know, MIT is notoriously difficult to get into. If you have high school students who are listening to this who are really brilliant and they're looking for their competitive edge to, to actually get accepted to MIT, what would be your advice to them? Um, MIT is not an easy place to get into. Like you said, it's, it's, it's not easy. I'm not going to say it's easy. Um, but what it is is you've got to meet all the check marks first. So have a good GPA, get a good SAT score, all that stuff you've got to do uh, for any top college, right? But that's not what's going to get you anywhere special. Um, what what these uh, you know these admissions officers and, and and all these folks are looking for is, is passion and potential. So, you know what what is the passion that someone who's 15, 16, 17, 18 has figured out in their life? Um, you know where where do they invest their time? Um, what are they doing outside of the box that makes them unique? How are they you know discovering themselves? And that could be anything. It doesn't have to be academic, you know. So my sophomore year, I had a roommate who was uh, who was on the Korean archery team, uh, the national archery team, and he was getting recruited to be on their Olympic team. Um, and he loved archery. He was like not someone who grew up, you know, with parents who did archery or anything. He just was like, archery seems cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna go learn. Um, so he bought himself a kit and started learning, and then you know applied and, and got selected to the national team and, and and did did a bunch of really cool stuff with it. So he ended up saying, I'm not going to the Olympics, I'm going to go to MIT, and came. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, things like that. It doesn't have to be academic, right? Whatever it is, people find their passions, um, and it's important to have something um, to say, given, you know, being at MIT, I'm going to make the most of the resources I have because I have direction, and I'm really striving to do more than what's expected of me. 
yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing advice, not just for MIT, but just generally in life, just yeah. passion and focus are so important. And yeah. like, you know, Ishwar's rant on, on not rant, but Ishwar's uh, monologue on, on MIT acceptance, not just for high school students, but for, for parents who are looking to have their kids thrive as they're getting into high school. Um, it starts early. I mean, you gotta, you gotta start when you're really young. It's one of the things that, that I wish I would have focused on a lot more is, is, Hey, just really focus from the time that I'm four years old and really get good and really get skills in a really concentrated area that I can be passionate in and have fun whenever I want to. Um, cool. So that's, that's MIT and that's kind of your background. Um, now I'd like to go more into your background. And so one of the things that has always stood out to me about, about your experiences is that you've had some pretty incredible internships and, and fellowship experiences. So could you first walk us through the, the history of your internship experience? And then we'll get into you know, dissecting each of those different experiences and what the internship process did for you and how, what you learned from that. Yeah. So the way I looked at it freshman year actually was um, I knew I wanted to found something and I was like, okay, this is probably what I want to do when I come out of MIT. Um, what can I do with these four opportunities that I have? You know, I've got four shots at working somewhere and kind of being an apprentice of this company. And how can I maximize each of those four opportunities to learn something new? Um, so year one, um, I worked at Samsung, um, not corporate Samsung. It was their accelerator. Um, so it was sort of a chance occurrence that I ended up there through an alumni who I met. And he sort of said, uh, we met at an event and he came back and he emailed me. He said, Hey, you want a job? I'm like, Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and he was like, so I've never done this thing before. How much do I pay you? I, you know, I was a freshman. I had no idea. I was like, uh, I don't really know. Let me find out. Um, so I ended up finding out how much I should get paid or, you know, I, you know, I just gave him a number. Okay. Wait, wait, we got, we got to stop. We got to pause there for a second. Okay. Number one, what, what, how did you go about finding out what to get paid as a freshman? Yeah. So I asked a couple friends and I was like, Hey, how much did you get paid last summer upperclassmen? Um, and they just threw numbers out there. And I actually, I ended up going back to them and I said, I, you know, it's, it's really tough to tell, like, people different cities different companies they all have standards like do you have somebody else who could maybe like do you, does your hr know and he just threw a number back at me and i was like i'll take it um <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> i wouldn't i would have done it for free i mean that's where i was <laughs> that's fantastic and then the second question is what did you talk to him about at the event that made him like you so much so um i was actually working on a startup idea uh freshman year um, which was sort of volumetric video capture. That's what, it, that, that's what we were working on. Um, it was way too early for any of that. Uh, we realized much later on, but it was a really good learning experience just to go through it, try to raise some money and, and do, you know, do the prototyping, do all of that. Um, anyways, this was an event with um, uh, a bunch of alumni and we were sort of just presenting, you know, pitching and, and presenting there. Um, and I guess something I said or did struck a chord with him. I don't, personally don't remember um, but, but he reached out and said, do you want a job? Um, which is great because I suck at interviews, um, or technical interviews in particular. So interesting enough, all of my jobs I've ever received, I haven't had to do an interview for. Um, I've just kind of found a way to not do an interview. Um, <laughs> that, that might be one of the most interesting things that comes out of this conversation. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the risks I ended up taking, taking was, well, I learned freshman year was, Interview season is September to like December or January, right? That's when like most tech jump companies and folks are for hiring and they, they're done by then. Um, but one of the things I noticed was all those jobs, almost all of them are 
big jobs, like you don't actually know what you're going to be doing, which I was never a fan of. Because again, going back to the mindset of like, how do I maximize this, you know, one in four chance I have, I want to know what I'm going to work on before I commit to something. So I would always wait till like March or April to like start looking for jobs, which is a huge like gamble because it's like 80% of jobs are gone, 90% of jobs are gone, but there's a couple, right? And those are like way more specific. It's like, I'm looking for this kind of person to do this kind of work. Um, so I'd always wait for those. Uh, and then, you know, scout through those, but it was always a stressful thing. Cause I wouldn't get my job finalized. So like a week before I would start. Dude, you're doing it right. That's, that's, um, that's really exciting. And you have great stories that came out of that too. Okay. Yeah. Back onto the internship, the internship track. So you worked at Samsung at their accelerator. Uh, yeah. What specifically did you do there? So uh, I was sort of a hacker in residence for them. I worked with a couple companies, one in particular, uh, which was doing um, analytics for VR content creators. So we basically, you know, they had a, uh, a plugin that anybody who's making a 360 film or making, uh, you know, a game or experience could get. And think of it like Google Analytics, but for, for VR. Because you have a lot more um, sensors and input. You have, you know, head pose, gaze tracking, what are they selecting? How quickly does it, you know, how long does it take them to find something? Um, so all those things to better, you know, basically for testing for creators um, was, was something that uh, we were building. It was a small team. I was the third person on that team. Um, and uh, I basically worked on sort of a WebXR version for them. And WebXR is this platform that lets you build VR experiences on the web. So any website can turn into a WebXR, WebXR um, experience. It was like super early for WebXR. Um, today it's a lot more popular, but in 2016, you know, 2015, it was like just coming out. Um, but it was a really good experience to see the startup process and, you know, they were just raising money and doing all of that. So helping them out with that was, was really fun. Okay. And then you went from Samsung back to school and then you got your next internship, which was where? So, uh, I actually worked for a month at uh, NASDAQ. So this was, uh, so we have, MIT has a January term. So January is kind of in between both of our semesters and we can do whatever we want. There's a lot of things you could do. Um, I went to work at NASDAQ at their innovation lab. So this was interesting because it was basically like a three and a half week sprint to build something. Um, and we built a, we worked on the HoloLens. Uh, the HoloLens had come out three months before that. So uh, got a chance to work at really the bleeding edge of that um, and built a, uh, uh, a data visualization platform for uh, financial data for NASDAQ. An internal tool for them to be able to share and storytell with data. Um, and it was a just a really fun three and a half weeks to just go from start to end, starting to, you know, just designing this idea. And me and the, the, the other person I was working with just basically incubated this idea entirely ourselves. We were the two-man team that took it from start to finish. Um, so that was a ton of fun. Learned a lot and got to work with AR for the first time. That's amazing. And, and did you have the skill sets going into that experience or did you build the skill sets while you were there? It was a lot of learning on the job. I mean, I knew a little bit, um, but I knew the fundamentals, I would say. So what's interesting is a lot of people who go into VR and AR come from a 2D background, like they're web designers or they've done 2D games or something. Um, For me, the start of my journey was VR and AR. So I had always been thinking about 3D from the beginning. I didn't have to like think about 2D and like try to forget about thinking about 2D to go to 3D. So the technical tools, you know, 
that's stuff that you can learn on the job. I think what's really important is to have that design framework to be able to think about it the right way. Um, I think that's something that I was, you know, in some ways lucky to not have the experience of doing 2D stuff. I could think from a fresh slate of, of everything in 3D. And then from NASDAQ, you go back to school in February. And yeah. Then from February to May, you're in school and then you end up at Intel. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I went to Intel after that. Um, kind of a similar story um, to Samsung. I uh, found, um, I got, I, I got reached out to by, um, by someone at Intel who was looking for a VR AR expert or someone who can really just, uh, you know, build things for them. Their team wasn't doing VR AR specifically. They were sort of a platform team at Intel uh, working a lot of processor stuff, but also just performance testing stuff. So I took on that job and ended up in uh, beautiful Folsom, California, which is uh, north of San Francisco. So this was uh, definitely unique because it's kind of a tiny city. Um, the only thing there is Intel, um, pretty much. Uh, so I ended up there, worked on a lot of different things, VR and AR, built sort of an architectural tool for them to performance test and stress test their processors and computer vision tools. Um, yeah. Okay, so what did you learn that summer? What did you what did you take away from working at Intel? I mean, it's a massive corporation. Yeah. Your your three experiences were really at at really big companies. Um, yeah, I guess so, the former two were really in more siloed units of those companies are probably operating yeah. more like startups. But what, what did you learn from yeah. working at such big companies? So Samsung was definitely like sort of a, an accelerator incubator type of environment. Nasdaq was a lot more R and D because you know with the innovation lab it was a lot more R and D um, style. And then Intel was totally different. And I learned a ton from how the company is structured. So one of the things about Intel is they have to pretty much uh, work with every other company in Silicon Valley. You know, whether it's an Apple, a Facebook, a Microsoft, or a small startup that's, you know, launching, launching something, Intel basically has to work with them. So they've got partners across the board. So the way their company is structured is each unit has its own sort of external relations division to work with these companies. Now, that said, they also have sort of an Apple uh, Intel group. So this group has the culture of Apple. So literally they have closed walls. Only people with Apple Intel, you know, IDs can even get in there. So it's like a little, you know, they, they basically adopt all the culture that their company they work with has. Same thing with Microsoft. So there's the Microsoft, or I guess it was called the Windows... Um, uh, Windows responsive group or something like that. They worked on all the Windows and Microsoft tools, and they adopted the culture of Microsoft. Um, but then, you know, other tool, other other teams like the RAM team would have their own, you know, um, external relations team, and each of these units manages their own profits and losses. So it's like fifteen different small companies inside of Intel um, because that's the most efficient way they can operate. So that was extremely interesting to see how their corporate structure was. Um, and the second thing was the culture Intel has is very unique in Silicon Valley because um, they have a lot of loyalty. Um, people who work there stay there for a really long time because of the way they treat their employees. Um, so, you know, whether it was the, you know, 2000s uh, crash and, and, and the, the struggle Silicon Valley had, Intel basically said, we're not going to fire anybody. We're going to hold on to all of our employees and we're going we're gonna to take care of you guys. Um, and people, you know, my boss said, you know, that basically made me say, I'm going to stay here for the next 20 years. Um, and that kind of loyalty is really hard to, to get. So that's something else that I was, uh, you know, glad to see and, and, and learn from. So you really have covered the gambit of startup all the way through big corporation in your, in your short 
four years of college, you really squeezed as much out of that as you can. And then there's yeah. a totally another side of things that you've covered. And that's kind of the innovation facilitation role. Um, I'm, yeah. I've always been taken by your experience at IDEO and I've always wanted to learn more about that. So maybe let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, yeah. So what, how I understand that was your summer, summer between what, what two years of college? That was a uh, junior year. So that was two, 2018. Yeah. 2018. Um, yeah. So I, I uh, was always fascinated by design and design thinking. And um, I, I started to learn a bit of it. You know, I came into MIT wanting to be an engineer, but I really wanted to, well, I had to sort of pick up, designed from a technical standpoint because I was a lot of times I was a one-man army in these projects and I was like hey I want things to look amazing you know because that influences so much of what somebody thinks of your your project and product um so that was something that I valued a lot and I wanted to learn more of it and I said what better place and way to learn it than go to IDEO who invented design thinking so I kind of set out on this journey to see how I can go work at IDEO um and IDEO has this division called the CoLab, which is relatively new. Um, and the CoLab is effectively their corporate innovation R&D um, angle. So there are companies that are member companies or partner companies with, with the CoLab. And um, the CoLab basically spits out prototypes throughout the year. They make 200, 300 prototypes throughout the year of emerging tech, of new concepts, of new ways of thinking about things. And the partner companies are folks like, you know, BP and McDonald's and Starbucks um, and, uh, you know, energy corporations, companies that are entrenched in the way they do things and need a new way to think about innovation. So the Colab basically, you know, it's sort of a decentralized way to do innovation is these guys are churning out prototypes that just change the way some of these executives and companies are thinking about what they're doing. Um, and uh, what's unique about that is it's not typical design consulting or it's not a typical design firm because you don't have a client. You're making a prototype for the sake of making the prototype. Um, so you don't have a client that you're trying to please. You don't have, you know, you could choose to extend a project by two weeks if you want to. You know, you don't have to get approval for it. Um, so it's very, a highly creative process. And uh, you get to be in a sandbox and just churn out really cool ideas that you get to think about without a lot of the constraints that you might normally have. And Tell us a little bit more about IDEO because I think it's such an important institution, not just the company, but the institution of what IDEO has, has promulgated through society in, yeah. with this design thinking methodology. Tell us a little bit more about design thinking and IDEO. Sure, sure. Um, so IDEO is hugely influential um, over the past uh, sort of two, three, three and a half, four decades. Um, when IDEO was founded, it was founded in uh, Palo Alto in Silicon Valley, um, effectively as a product design firm for helping companies um, design physical products. So their, the, the biggest project they ever did was they designed the first Apple mouse. So Steve Jobs uh, came to IDEO and said, look, I have this mouse that's $600 to produce. It's the first trackball mouse, really cool technology, but it's $600 to produce. Um, we need to commercialize this thing. So IDEO took that and said, all right, let's figure this out. So they distilled it down and made a mouse that was, I think, $25 or $30. Um, so one tenth of the price of the initial thing, and then that that you know the mouse has been so influential to computing uh, in any way. So they have the claim to claim there, and they worked with tons of other companies. So they helped design the first electric toothbrush for Oral B, um, and, and others like that. But they built a mantra within IDEO of how we think about design, and um, they, they they invented a lot of things. I mean, they had a super flat hierarchy to start with. Um, there was no big corporate structure. They had they had open offices from day one. They had um, uh, you know, incubated projects. Um, they had 
this design thinking philosophy of we're going to work with um, our clients, customers, and users from step one. Um, and, and, they, and they piloted all of this um, and, and started to launch on other places. So they, in, in the 2000s, they started to go digital, help companies in the digital transformation um, and whatever that was, so moving physical products. Uh, they have Ideal Org, which helps. Um, it's a nonprofit to help um, you know countries around the world, um, institutions, help governments think about design thinking and how to change the way they approach innovation um, and, and 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 building. So they've really they were they invented design thinking in many ways, and it's pervaded across across the country and world today, across all companies. Everyone's trying to adopt it because it's a different framework for solving problem solving. And um, I think it's parallel. It's similar to the scientific method in many ways. I think they have similarities and differences, but it's it's as fundamental as something with the scientific method that governs all science. Um, and so, could you just describe what the design thinking methodology is for someone who who doesn't yeah. know? I mean, I've I've recently only for, started formally learning about it, and it's it's mind blowing um, how obvious some of these principles are. But if you could break down those yeah. principles, it'd be amazing. Yeah, so um, this is the framework I kind of present when I present design thinking to people. There's a lot of different ones. Um, ultimately, it's a sort of attitude that you take. It's not really the frameworks, but the frameworks are useful. So the step one is um, identifying the problem. So that starts with talking to people. That starts with talking with um, you know, users, observing them, and seeing what they're doing, um, and, and, and distilling the problem down to something you could try to solve. So there's a concept of a how might we. Um, which is a, a phrasing for a question of how might we solve something for somebody. Um, it's this very like sort of narrow, uh, defined question that you could ask that lets you think creatively about solutions. Um, and then you present your how might we to your users as well. Then you go out and you start building prototypes, super low fidelity stuff. You want the lowest fidelity prototypes possible, get it in front of people um, and see what they're going to do with it. So you really try to, you really bring the users and customers into the loop as early as possible. Um, and you keep doing that. You keep working with people. You can design with them. You can have them in the room as you're coming up with concepts, for example, or you can, um, you know, observe them. Um, and one story that I love sharing um, of somebody who used design thinking is uh, this company, PillPack. They're, um, they're an MIT uh, uh, alumni founder company. Oh, they're an MIT they, company? I didn't know that. They are. Yeah, yeah. So they, they partnered with IDEO, actually. to So IDEO kind of incubated them in many ways and helped them with their design process. And then, of course, they ended up getting acquired by Amazon pretty recently. Um, I think it was about a billion dollars they got acquired for. Um, so great success story. But one of the things they did was um, they were thinking about packaging for pills um, and, and how that really hasn't changed in a long time. So they did a lot of focus studies, and they did a lot of interviews, and they, uh, remember, they, they asked a woman with Parkinson's, um, an elderly woman with Parkinson's, do you have any pro trouble with opening your, your pills? And she was like, no, I've been doing it for, you know, decades, like two decades, I have no problems. Um, a little while later, they actually observed her at her house in her day-to-day -day procedure. So they, like, watched her and, and, like, spent a day with her, watching everything she does. And each morning she wakes up, uh, when she has new pills, or each Monday, I guess, uh, she has a meat slicer in her kitchen. She takes her pill bottle, goes, turns on the meat slicer, chops off the cap, and pours the pills into a Ziploc bag. That's how she does her, her weekly pills every week. And of course, she's going to say she has no problems because she's been doing that for decades. Um, and they, they saw this happening. They're like, holy crap, we've, we've got to do something about this. Because um, the pill bottle is just so badly designed for someone who is, uh, you know, who has shaking in her hands and, and other issues. Um, so that's a story that, 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 that highlights, like, you can ask people questions, and they're going to give you the right answers. 
but they're not the answers that you want. Um, sometimes you have to really observe them and go through the design thinking principles to really get to the core of the problem and keep investigating. Because um, if they didn't do that study and they just let it, you know, stop with a questionnaire, they would have never discover that. That's so design thinking as a resource is super fundamental and it really gives you access to some of these other you know, empathy resources of, Hey, let me put myself in this mm -hmm. woman's shoes. That's the ultimate resource for solving yeah. the, the, the elderly pill taking problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and did you learn about that at IDEO and did you adopt this methodology at IDEO or is this something that you learned about earlier on in your career? So I was definitely a fan of design thinking, um, probably around 20 late 2017 when I started diving into what is design um, I really just wanted to learn it because I was, I was jealous of designers um, to start off. I was, this, I was this engineer coming into it and I was like, man, these people like make things that look amazing, you know? And it's like, wow, like I want to do that. Um, and I just wanted to learn more about it. And along that way, I started learning about design, not just as a tool, but as a framework and as a, as a philosophy. Um, and that's when I started learning about design thinking. And at IDEO, I really got to practice it, I think, and work with people who knew it much better than me coming from reading little books on it. Um, people who kind of had studied it and had been doing it for years. Um, and I actually, we, we, uh, one of the days the founders of IDEO walked through the offices and that was, you know, just fascinating for me to like be in the room for, because I was like, wow, I, I've read your books. You know, I, I learned about this whole thing from you. Um, and, and just being in that environment of people who are doing it at the best, I uh, definitely learned a ton fr from that, that, you know, I can't even compare to what I uh, would have just learned from, from, from books and uh, videos and internet. Okay. Moving, moving on. I mean, one of the other places where design is really prevalent in your life is you mentioned the media lab before at MIT. Could you break down what the media lab is? And, and maybe I'd love to hear about how you work with the media lab and what you've learned from the media lab. Yeah. Um, the media lab is a fascinating place. I think it's one of a kind in many ways. Um, but effectively it's, uh, so the media lab is a set of, um, it's a department at MIT um, focused on lots of different things. Um, it's focused on stuff that doesn't fit into traditional labs and stuff that doesn't fit in traditional um, hierarchies and philosophies. Um, so it's broken up into small groups, um, several small groups. So there's sort of a, and they all have, all the groups are focused on philosophies and not technologies. So you have a fluid interfaces group that works on everything from AR and VR to, you know, BCIs to bio-inspired, um, you know, olfactory interfaces or, or, or hearing implants, interfaces for interfacing between humans and computers all across the board. Um, there's a responsive environments group. There's um, object-based media, um, personal robotics, names that are, are big enough that they can transcend individual technologies. Um, and how it works is there are member companies, and these companies are pretty much every bit, a lot of big companies that we know of today who um, sort of are, you know, paying uh, the media lab to continue churning up projects. So it's very similar to the CoLab. Actually, the CoLab that I mentioned before is based on the media lab model. Um, and the media lab, basically, you know, the, these companies support individual masters or, or PhD projects, um, and they get to showcase these. Um, and one of the things that comes out of the, these is that, a lot of these projects are more polished prototypes of envisioning a way the world is going to work rather than research concepts or research, um, you know, research papers and prototypes. So a lot of them are, are more tangible for us to understand. 
Um, but that doesn't mean they're not technically or, or scientifically complex. Some of them are definitely complex. Um, but, but it's this concept of, of innovation and churning out prototypes that are future thinking, forward looking. Um, and it's a place for misfits is the way they define it. It's for people who don't fit in the EE lab or the CS lab, but people, you know, who are coming to the media lab because they're misfits and, um, and, you know, want to hack on stuff different from traditional research. Can you talk about what the, I guess, multi, multidisciplinary makeup of the media lab looks like? So, so yeah, I've always been really interested in how, you know, someone from business can come in and build up their hacker skill set. And I feel like the yeah. Media Lab is one of the few places where that actually happens in a high concentration. Yeah, um, the term that uh, the Media Lab uses is anti-disciplinary. So there is no disciplines at the Media Lab. You are a person. Um, and what we, what sort of we're coming to there is that um, we all have the basic fundamentals of curiosity, capability, problem solving. That's all that matters. Um, those fundamental principles for how we think are all that matter for being a good researcher at the Media Lab. Um, so you have people from all walks of life. So you have people who have Hollywood, you know, special effects backgrounds. People who are coming from consulting. People are coming from you know traditional sciences and engineering. Um, people are coming from music. Just lots of interesting backgrounds um, come together. And when you're there, you're a Media Lab researcher. That's your title. That's the only thing you are. Um, it doesn't matter what your experience and expertise really, really was before that. Is that the title that you have, or are you are you in a different in a different bucket because you work you're in the E department, or how does that work with your? With yeah, your yeah. So, situation? so I'm actually uh, so you know my 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 uh, official department is electrical engineering and computer science, but my research lab is an AeroAstro. Um, but I definitely have a lot of collaborators at the Media Lab, and we, we collaborate on projects. And of course, the the hackathon you know has. Um, it, it, it's housed in the, in the media lab and, and really uh, that's a vehicle for it. Um, so I work closely with them, but my, myself, you know, I'm not at the media lab. Um, I spend a lot of time there, but uh, not as a uh, official researcher. And what is your favorite part of MIT? We've talked about the media lab. We've talked about your hackathon. So what is your, your favorite kind of sub institution at the institution that is MIT? Um, hmm. That's a tough one to answer. Uh, there's a couple. Um, in general, I, I really like, there's several institutions within MIT that are sort of like, we're going to break shit. Um, and whatever that might be, they're just like, we're going to just, you know, break things. Are we um, talking like when you go to one of those rooms with a hammer and they just have a bunch of garbage and you can just beat the crap out of so, the hammer? I mean, th that exists, yes. But also just like, we're going to just, break, you know, these like, uh, you know, uh, sort of societal constraints or social rules or like whatever, you know, every type of thing, there's somebody who's trying to break it. For example, there was a, a group of students who were like, we're going to break machine learning classification. And that's what they ended up writing a paper on it. And it blew up because they basically built uh, a way to trick every common machine learning classification image system by changing a couple of pixels. It still looks like a turtle, but all machine learning classification systems see it as like something else. Um, so things like that, you know, people have this like culture of we want to break things, uh, which I love. And there's like groups on campus dedicated to doing that. So one example is hacking is a cult is sort of a, a thing here. And um, to define hacking, it's, um, it's basically breaking things um, or doing things in a interesting way. So there's two definitions. One is um, 
a hack is uh, sort of a public display of, uh, it's like a public installation of something. So for example, when, um, when it was like Earth Day one year, we took our big dome and the top of the dome looked like an Earth. Um, or, you know, when uh, there's any like, any big world event, there's some public installation that students do in a big way to just uh, show solidarity or raise awareness to it. Um, and these are, you know, quote unquote illegal. Like you're not supposed to be on top of the roof. You're not supposed to like, you know, do things like that. But there's a culture of doing that now. So there's sort of official ways of doing it where you maintain anonymity. And as long as you're not hurting anybody, um, the administration says, okay, that's going to be up for two days. Um, which is fascinating. It's like, we're going to allow these people to break the rules, you know? Uh, as long as we don't catch them, they can break the rules uh, because it's such a core part of the culture. Uh, and the most famous hack of all time is one one day um, a police car appeared on top of the roof of our big dome. Um, and no one had any idea where it came from, but it was sort of a public, I think the police were cracking down on know, tickets or something in the 80s. And these students were like, we're tired of it. We're going to just like do something crazy. So they built a car overnight on top of the roof because um, there's no way to take a car up there. So they, like, they took all the parts and built it in a couple hours and like left it there. Um, and the police struggled to like take it down afterwards. They had to like rent a crane and like rig it down, um, which is just a dichotomy between like how you break things and how you like, you know, how, how they're fixing it. Um, so that's one definition of hacking. The other definition is people go exploring on our rooftops. So it's an underground culture of students doing this. Um, the administration does to some degree allow it to happen because it's such a core part of the culture and it's very unique. It's a, a 3 a.m. adventure after you turn in your assignments to say, hey, let's you know, go on top of this roof of this building and explore it or like just hang out there you know, and, and look over the Charles or whatever. Uh, but this, uh, the sense of breaking the rule there, again, is, is just very unique um, and I just love that culture. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm, I was thinking like, did they rent a, uh, a cargo plane? Did they airdrop it onto the roof? <laughs> did they rent a helicopter? Did they need to get a Blackhawk? Yeah. Um, so there was also a, a big rivalry between Caltech and MIT in the 80s, I think. So they used to pull pranks or hacks on each other. Um, so one year, MIT went to Caltech, and their like mascot is the cannon. And just, so just, the, just to set the stage, Caltech's in California, on the other yeah. side of the country. Okay. Yes. So these kids, uh, you know, rented a truck, drove across the country, um, and stole their cannon in plain daylight, and drove it back to MIT. <laughs> uh, yeah. Across the country. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah. That's really, really funny. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, so moving on, diving more into your project experience. So you, you won an ST, STIR, an S, S, uh, SBIR. As TTR, what 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 was the story there with the Air Force? Yeah, let's just dive. Yeah, so 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 that was um, uh, an innovation challenge that the Air Force put out um, to think about new ways of visualization for uh, for their satellite operators. And um, me and a couple other friends, um, you know, alumni and, and current students decided. Sorry to interrupt. Just one more question there. When you say put out, how what, where where did they put this out? <laughs> yeah, so um, their sort of innovation wing publicize this um, through their, you know, their press releases, their social media, and a couple of innovation challenge websites. One in particular that um, we founded on is called Innocentive. So it's a place for companies and, you know, the government to put out uh, sort of calls for proposals um, for these short-term innovation projects that anybody could submit to. You know, you don't have to be a company, you don't have to be a corporation to do it. 
Um, so we put together a little prototype over, I think, three weeks. Basically, what we did was it was a visualization, a VR visualization of all the satellites in um, uh, Leo, Geo, Neo. Can you define each orbits. of those? Yeah, so there are different Earth orbits, um, uh, you know, for different types of satellites. And uh, the, the, I think, uh, I believe Geo is sort of a, an, an equatorial axis orbit, and then, um, sorry, uh, axial axis, and then, or sorry, polar axis. That it goes on the poles, and then Leo is on the equatorial uh, of the Earth. Uh, effectively, it's different orbits for satellites. Um, and we, we had real time, we had data about all these satellites, um, and you can view all the satellites on a life-size earth or, you know, not life-size, but massive earth in VR. Um, and you'd be able to view all their trajectories, um, and see any collisions. And if there is going to be a collision, you can uh, readjust the routes, um, accordingly. So we submitted this thing, built it super quickly. I think we probably spent 30 hours on it, um, developing it. Um, but that's where some of the design thinking stuff comes in is like, if you have 30 hours, how are you going to make something that looks extremely polished, looks, um, has, is functional. Um, but you know, minimize the time you're spending building it. So it's like prioritizing the right things and making sure you choose the right roads to take and not, you know, if you take a wrong road, you just don't have the time to afford to walk back and take a different road. Um, so we built this thing super quickly. And we submitted it, and they loved it. They ended up uh, selecting us to win uh, $20,000 um, for, for the prototype we built. Um, and then we worked with them for about uh, a week and a half at Colorado at their airbase um, with their satellite operators to think about how this is actually going to work and what do they need. Because we came, you know, uh, we had no experience with any of this, right? We, we saw this proposal. We saw some background information learned about it. But we'd ne never talked to a satellite operator. You know, we haven't even seen how this process works, but we had a vision for how it could work. Um, but spending that week with them, we learned a ton about how, you know, what are the problems, what are the pain points with how they currently operate. Um, so we tweaked our project and prototype and uh, sort so of handed it off to them. Um, and interesting news, actually, two months ago, I saw that uh, they contracted out um, a, uh, an Australian company to build out something very similar to what our initial prototype was. So it looks like they're taking the idea further and hopefully putting it into production. And, and what was the timeline here? So you apply um, in what month, then you get to the competition, yeah. how, how long later? So innovation challenges vary in their timelines. This one in particular is very quick. So I think the call for proposals is put out in December maybe, or, or November. Of what year? Um, of 2018. Okay. Um, and then we submitted, or we found out about it in late December, submitted to it by January 15th of 2019. Um, and by March, I believe, or end of February, they got back to us and said, we love your thing. We want to fund you guys. Um, so within like two months, you know, we, we, we were sorting that out. And April, we were at, uh, or actually middle of March, we were at Colorado working with their uh, operators. Wow, and then and then it's it's only March 2020 now, and so it's less than a year later that they're actually yeah. trying to go produce that. Wow, that's really cool. And and exactly, do you, do you I mean, yeah. Contrast that with say um, the Air Force contracting Lockheed to say build me a prototype <clears throat> over the next ten months, and then the prototype is like, okay, this is kind of useful. Now let's go to production, and then spend two years building something. Here, I mean, such a fast iteration of they got 25, 30, 40. I don't know how many projects they got at the first phase, right? But then they could refine it, flush it out, and then, uh, you know, go on from that. 
That's incredible. I mean, innovation challenges are an incredible resource, not just for for you to go learn and build and have the opportunity yeah. to go prototype and work with an organization like the Air Force, but for organizations like the Air Force, yeah. for companies and for established institutions to go and, yeah. and tap young talent like you to yeah. go and innovate really quickly. Um, what was it like working with the Air Force? Was it was it big and bureaucratic? Was it fun? What, can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that experience? Surprisingly, it wasn't bureaucratic at all. Um, I've, uh, for what I've learned in the past year, the Air Force is redefining itself in the innovation space, and they've just hired a lot of folks from Silicon Valley and from uh, you know, just a lot of younger folk to redefine and, and shape how the Air Force is going to support innovation. Of all of the branches of the government and, and that, that does the innovation stuff, Air Force is definitely the one that is um, sort of a model. Um, we really had no problems. I mean, we went there, there was, you know, no access problems. There was no, you know, no red tape. We just got access to everything. Um, I mean, we were in a sandbox, of course, but effectively they just let us have, you know, have uh, free reign over what we wanted to do. And uh, one of the things I'm looking into now is actually the Air Force has the SBIR program, uh, which is sort of an innovation grant. And uh, one of the crazy things is the Air Force has these pitch days and they give cash and a credit card on the spot for companies they select um, to receive a grant. Contrast that to the army or to other branches of the government where you spend like months writing proposals and then it'll take like five months or a year for your cash to actually come into your hands after doing that. Um, so the Air Force is really rethinking how they do innovation in a lot of ways. And when you say rethinking how they do innovation, were you you know, giving them feedback throughout this process about, hey, here's, here's how we did this at IDEO. Hey, here's how we would do this at my Samsung Accelerator, things like this. Yeah, so they, I mean, this was their first time doing an innovation challenge, um, from what I understand, or at least the specific group we were working with. So they were trying to understand this better from how do people like us who are looking for these things, what are we looking for? Um, and we definitely gave them some things that uh, would have helped us better. Like one of the things was we would have loved access to the actual users ahead of time whether if, even if it's just video testimonials or, or, or just a video of how they do things, um, not having that and just, you know, just having data doesn't help us. Um, and, and having some things like that would really be helpful. Uh, but yeah, we definitely, you know, it's a process for them. They're trying to figure out still. Um, and, and we tried our best to, to give them some feedback into how they can, uh, how they can improve it. What other innovation challenges have you competed in, if any? Um, we, uh, me and the same team, actually, we did, uh, we did sort of a NASA innovation challenge once in uh, 2017, um, no, sorry, 2018, uh, that was on, um, uh, new space suit interfaces. So it was, a uh, sort of an open challenge for, um, new suit interfaces, uh, using AR and VR. Um, so we built, built a prototype there and, and likewise, we got to go work with, uh, with the Johnson Space Center for 10 days. Um, and actually uh, test with some of their human subjects um, and get some qual quantitative data from them. Um, so that was the other big one we've done. Um, uh, I, I'm actually kind of late to this game. The, the, the two or three guys that I, I've done some of these with have done you know, dozens of innovation challenges, and uh, one of them actually has panned out to uh, a sort of part-time DOD contract that they're doing um, that they're finishing up right now. So there's definitely a whole market of innovation challenges for people to just – work on lots of cool side projects because you know, when am I ever thinking about Air Force satellite operators and thinking about this challenge um, for a weekend? You know, because of this framework, I got to really think about it, think about it in that lens. And that's not my expertise, but bringing my expertise into that lens um, is, is a really unique opportunity.
what is a if you if you had to, if you had the opportunity to design an innovation challenge say the the prize was was what was the prize for the air force one that was uh just cash twenty thousand dollars all right let's say the prize was forty thousand dollars for this new innovation yeah. competition what area would you design the competition in and and if you want to get more specific what would the competition be um whew, uh, let's see I've definitely thought about a couple before. Um, I think one that I would probably, it would probably be in the AR VR world um, for me. Um, I think one innovation challenge I would like to probably propose um, is a new infrastructure for how people design for AR and VR. Um, The infrastructures we have today are you build native apps, right? Similar to how we have mobile apps on our phones or web apps, or sorry, our, our desktop apps. Other framework is web apps um, or just websites. I think both of these were designed like you know they've been they've been around for decades, um, and I don't think they work for the way we think about AR and VR. Um, so I would probably propose an innovation challenge for a new way to redesign how we build software for XR um, and forget about these traditional frameworks that we do for the purposes of this. That's a, I sounds super interesting. Um, so let's let's move away from from some of your projects, and that's just anything else that you are so excited about that you've built. I'm sure that there are other things. So is there anything else that you're really excited about that you've built that you'd love to share? Um, nothing jumps out. Okay, we've covered cool. a lot of stuff. <laughs> cool, yeah, we've covered a lot. Thank you, thank you again yeah. for for taking the time to uh, to sit here and and let me yeah. grill you on your on your experiences. Sure, so, sure. So let's 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 back up a little bit. So you grew up in Jersey. I'd love to learn a little bit more about what do your parents do? What is your family like? Yeah. So, um, uh, so I was born in India before coming to the U S. Um, I moved when I was four with my family. Um, my dad is, uh, sort of a financial database manager slash has an accounting background. Um, so he's in the intersection of sort of it and, and finance. Um, my mom was a former math teacher and, uh, now she, she works in the school department, uh, local, uh, sort of school district. Um, that's, that's a bit of what both of them do, but they're both definitely very sort of scientific and, uh, both have science and math backgrounds. Um, so STEM was something early on in life that, uh, that was a, a strength I would say, uh, because of having them. Um, yeah. And then I, you know, I, I grew up in Georgia city for, for pretty much, you know, 14, 15 years, um, inner city kid. <laughs> what, what did you do? What were your hobbies? Were you a, yeah. were you a, 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 a you know, academic workaholic? Did you have, uh, you know, science projects you did outside of class? Were you an I, athlete? I was not an academic work. I mean, I worked hard, but I was not definitely the academic kind. Um, I did enough to like have a good enough, high enough GPA. I was never someone striving to be valedictorian. Um, you know, I wasn't someone who, it just didn't interest me that much. Um, not to say I, I still did well. I just didn't, you know, cared that extra 20% to like, of course, yeah. in, in classes. 80, 20 um, analysis. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so what my, uh, things I did were, um, I loved model UN, um, in high school actually. And, um, I loved it because it gave me sort of freedom to, uh, just like think about words and think about the way people see you and how like you can drive an emotional reaction to people or like just convince them of something. And that sort of like human to human thing was very interesting to me. Um, and I just, I experimented a lot with public speaking through Model UN, 
which I find just immensely valuable for the way I think about um, like how people and systems work. Like how do I convince, you know, in Model UN, you take on the role of a country and you're convincing other countries to do things. So you have to think about their priorities and their like viewpoints and things like that. And I think early on that experience really shaped the way I think about any decisions I make is like, how do I put myself in these people's shoes or how do I negotiate with them? Things like that. Um, but that was something that, that, that I, I put some time in. And then the second thing I really did was work on a, um, uh, a research project. Um, I had an invention in high school called the, the Ther- Theranem, um, which is a non-invasive um, respiratory monitor. Mm. Um, kind of just built it for fun uh, slash to um, uh, get more experience in engineering because I was like, I want to do this thing, but I've never actually done it. So let me actually try building something. Um, so did that and learned a lot took off. And really, that's what ended up getting me to MIT, I would say, in many ways. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What did it What did it look like? What did it do? How did you yeah. pick that topic? Are you asthmatic? Or did you have a, a, a condition so, that, you know, led you toward respiratory? Um, what actually happened was I was watching this documentary on sleep research. Um, and I noticed that sort of a lot of the ways that we were doing sleep research analysis was very archaic. Um, and respiratory monitoring in particular was one of the key uh, sort of um, diagnostic tools that we're using, and it hadn't changed for over two decades. So I, I just started digging into this and realized that respiratory monitoring is actually very critical for a lot of things. Um, it's, it's very predictive in, in strokes and organ failure, things like that. Um, and our tools just suck for it. You know, we're, we're talking about 10 electrodes, 12 electrodes. Um, a lot of people can't even go through that treatment or, or be in that setup. Um, so I was just kind of puzzled why different solutions didn't exist and kind of let my curiosity take me further with that. Um, and around the same time, I was, uh, ex- I-, I sort of discovered this musical instrument called uh, the theremin. I don't know if you've uh, heard of that or is that it. the little drum, the little pan, pan, pan guitar type thing? It's, um, it so like? it's, a, it, uh, it's this, uh, wooden thing with two antennas uh-huh. and you wave your hands in, in air and each uh-huh. antenna one is for pitch, one is for volume. So you like move your hands in air and uh-huh. it can detect the movement. And it, a lot of sci-fi noises come out of it. Alien, you know, the typical uh-huh. alien noise, right? Um, that's made on a theorem. Okay. So it's got this very sci-fi um, effect. And I was fascinated by the fact that it was entirely touchless. And I was like, what if we could use something like that to detect respiratory movement or, or sort of lung movement, right? Um, uh, so put two and two together and it was like, what if we could use this, um, for detecting breathing? And that started the journey of, um, tinkering and building theremins and just a lot of learning signal processing and learning electronics from scratch. Um, and two years later I had a working prototype that could detect breathing, uh, without any contact with the patient. So it was, two antennas above a patient's bed. They would be able to toss and turn in bed, but it would detect their uh, breathing overnight. Wow. Catch out a graph that a doctor would look at in the morning. Um, and I was, I was thrilled that it worked. I mean, I couldn't believe that it worked. Um, but the story after this gets kind of interesting because I was like, hey, maybe I should start presenting this to people. Mm. So I took it to my local science fair. Um, it's my local like, county like science a, fair. Like a NICEF, like a NICEF, ICEF yeah, type fair? Yeah, county, local, you know, ISF science fair. Um, and I'm fairly confident they didn't understand what I was doing at all. 
Um, it just didn't make sense to them. Um, it's not, it's also not a traditional science fair project, right? Because it's, I don't have an experiment. I don't have results. I have a thing I built, you know, and I have a demo. Um, it's very engineering. So I ended up getting third place in the county to this. I think the, the first place winner was a kid who um, tested cancer cells in different pHs. Um, great project, I'm sure, but I just felt <laughs> slighted. Um, and I was like, damn. I got cancer research just eats up all the nice things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, you know, but I was also not very confident what I had because, you know, I just built this thing in my garage in class. So um, I was like, okay, whatever. I guess it's maybe it's, it is what it is. Um, Google had launched a science fair around a year or two before that, 2014 or 2013 was when they launched it. I saw this thing. It looked really cool. And I was like, all right, maybe I'll apply to it. So I applied to it. You have to make a website for it. Did it. I didn't even read the rules. I just submitted to it. And um, a month and a half later, I got an email saying, you're one of the top 90 regional finalists. I was like, oh, cool. I guess I made like top in my state or like top in Northeast or something. Turns out that was 90 from the world. Um, and I was like, okay, I didn't even win my county, but I made 90 in the world. Um, I don't know how to respond to this. Um, so I was just like, I was shocked. Um, so then continue working on it a bit more, like we have to do some videos and stuff and some sort of PR with it. And uh, a month and a half later, there was a big live stream to announce the final 15. Um, and I just still remember sitting on my laptop, like watching this live stream and seeing that I got selected in the top 15 in the world. Um, and I mean, this was, you know, 16 year old me, like never experienced anything like that. Um, and just being so ecstatic. Um, and that started, that changed so many things in my life. That was really a turning point in life. Um, got to go to Google, um, spend time with these 15 other amazing creators got a lot of recognition for the project. Um, and people, you know, like it, my name was on a website that people would see, you know, every year that they applied to Google Science Fair. And even just that idea was like mind blowing to me. Um, so continue working on the project. Uh, I really think that's what, you know, got me to MIT in many ways. It was like, this is the passion I had and having that validation that this is something useful um, was really, really cool and, and definitely a turning point in my life. I'm so happy you shared that. I wasn't even thinking about the the science. I didn't know about that that science for aspect of your life and, and yeah. those those innovation competitions, engineering science competitions for high school students are super yeah. valuable. I did yeah. NICEF when I was when I was in high school. I did not win. I didn't have any success whatsoever. Um, but I learned a lot from the process, even yeah. just competing. And it's such an incredible resource. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. The innovation and engineering competitions are such a great resource. And so throughout that whole process, you probably grew immensely. And I mean, you just talked about how you grew immensely. Yeah. Did, you, did you end up taking that further? Did you take that to a company? Did you license it? What, what was your next step from yeah. there? Did you just so I considered a lot of those options as to what to do next with it. Um, I ultimately concluded that um, I loved the process. I loved what I was building. Um, the actual prospect of building a med tech company wasn't that exciting to me. Um, just going through FDA approval and the 510K, and it's, it's a whole big thing. You know, it's 10 years, five years, whatever it is. Um, I, was in a, I was sort of in a phase where I was like, I love building this thing. It took on a life of its own. But uh, I think it's time for me now to start from a blank slate and uh, put that, you know, 
put that in the garage, back in the garage. Um, that's the decision I ultimately ended up making. Um, and the other thing is pretty much all of it was up online. You know, um, I, I shared pretty much everything about it. And I still get inquiries once in a while about it. And like, this is fascinating. I want to like explore it further. Can I? I'm like, absolutely go for it. You know, like I, it's totally, a, you know, if you want to do something with it, I'd go for it. Um, so that's, that's where I kind of left it at. Uh, but the, the things I learned from it and the experiences I learned were invaluable for everything, you know, till today. And that was, I guess it's been like five, six years ago, but it's still immensely valuable for, for who I am today. So it's sitting in the garage. You haven't, you haven't gone, gone forward with licensing it. So, no. so if anyone wants to license the tech, uh, they should give you a call. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Amazing. I'll take the uh, calls. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. So Ishwar, thank you so much for coming on today. My last question for you is when you think out five, 10, 15 years from now, what are the, the, not, not the goals, but what are the resources that you're excited to take advantage of? What are the things that you're thinking about? And you're like, I cannot wait till I'm at a point in my life where I get to do that. I get to explore that opportunity, things like this. Um, so I think one of the things I would love to do is, um, through this hackathon, I've seen, you know, the hackathon that we built is, uh, catalyzing people to do amazing things. Um, and there's a lot of energy when you, when you come with a, a collective vision and are able to pull people together. Um, the limits are endless really with what you could do. You know, we really thought at times that it would have been impossible to raise the money we needed to raise for an event with six months or three months of time, you know, starting a brand new venture and doing all that in such a rapid time, but it's, it's really the people catalyzing people. Um, and I just can't wait to be able to build teams and, and build more of that, you know, have, you know, have groups of people who are working towards a common goal and, um, the potential for collective human output is like, it's, it's really endless. Um, and that's something I'm really excited for, not just with companies and, and, and products and ventures, but also just with things like service projects, you know, um, and, uh, thinking about probably not right now, but later down the line, how can I, how can I contribute back to, to the world and not just myself, you know, I want to start things that catalyzes people to go out and do something and, and, and create positive, positive change. Um, because the potential for groups of people doing things is just far greater than what I could do individually alone. Um, that's definitely the biggest thing I'm looking forward to is being able to do that coming out of this you know, university lifestyle where I've done a little bit of that, but ultimately, you know, it's a solo journey of figuring out yourself um, to go out and be able to, to build teams of people doing just fantastic things. That's beautiful. Beautiful way to end. Uh, Ishwar, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where can people find you to learn more about what you're working on websites, social media? Et yeah. So uh, website, if you, if anybody's interested in any of the projects that we talked about today here, uh, Ishwar.io, E-S-W-A-R.io is my personal site. Um, and, uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Ishwar VR, um, again, E-S-W-A-R VR. Um, and if you go on there, everything else is linked. So you can find all the others, but those are the two that, uh, that I'm going to pull plug for. Cool. And then Re reality hacks will link to that in these show notes. Um, sure. Ishwar, thank you so much for coming on and we hope that you have an amazing journey ahead and we'll definitely be watching closely as you're doing amazing and exciting things in the world. Thanks so much, Max. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. If you like this content, please head over to nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. That's nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe.